Okay, Zoot, it's time for your solo. Have you looked over the music? You expect me to play this, man? What else would you do with it? If I had a match, I could put it out of its misery. Trust me, Zoot, this is a great little number. What if I refuse to play it? What if I get a new sax player? What if you and I just get right down to it and do this little beauty, huh? Good thought. Forgive me, Charlie Parker, wherever you are. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick. Nick, to quote America's greatest living poet, Miss Taylor Allison Swift. Are you ready for it? Before I respond to that question, does that mean that I agree with you when you say that? Or... I don't have a problem with her, but that's mostly because I don't have a, a very strong concept of her one way or the other. So uh, we're here. We are we are at uh, the Muppet Show. It's true. It's time to start the music. It is definitely time to light the lights. It is. It's time to get things started. <laughs> so this has been. I hate to say this is what we've been waiting for because I've really enjoyed the other stuff we've watched. I think it's possible for us to have been really anticipating getting to the Muppet Show proper while still appreciating a lot of the material that we covered up to this point. And I think that rewatching the first couple of episodes of The Muppet Show, I've been able to appreciate them more, knowing where some of the earlier characters would have come from and how it did sort of seem like a, a synthesis of everything that came before it, instead of just being something that Jim came up with whole cloth, right? This is something that's been building for years. This is, like I said, one of my two or three favorite television shows of all time. I think, as we'll talk about it today, we're going to find out it still holds up. <laughs> it does. It definitely does. And uh, and I'm very excited to talk about it. But before we do, I'd like to remind people that this is a feat of lunatic daring. We are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. I ask you to check us out on social media. We are at Lunatic Daring on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I also ask you to check out lunaticdaring.com, uh, where we have our list of sources as well as our uh, list of things that we're going to watch if you want to watch along. Now, that's not going to help you with this. The Muppet Show is not streaming anywhere. There's a lot of consternation about why that is, why it's not on Disney+. Plus. A lot of it has to do with music rights. Media is a weird thing, right? Like in the 70s, when you would get the music rights to do something on television, or sometimes you wouldn't even get the rights, there was no concept that later you would be selling episodes of a television show on DVD. So that wasn't in the contract. And so then when TV on DVD became a thing, then people had to rewrite contracts. And, and if people are Freaks and Geeks fans, it took Freaks and Geeks forever to come to DVD because they had to renegotiate all the music rights for DVD. Well, now we're in the world of streaming and those contracts that said, okay, you can use our music on your DVDs, do not say you can use your music on streaming. <laughs> As new technology develops, it becomes harder and harder for companies to redistribute older things because they just don't have the rights to sh for the music. I believe that is one of the things keeping The Muppet Show off of Disney+. Plus. However, the DVDs of the first three seasons are widely available still. They are out of print, but you can get them pretty cheap online. Um, and that's what we're going to be watching. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to just get started. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to just talk about The Muppet Show. How about you? All right. 
In the beginning, there were three, the National Broadcasting Company, the Columbia Broadcasting System, and the American Broadcasting Company. NBC, CBS, and ABC. Well, okay, in the beginning, there were only two, NBC and CBS. They were producing radio programs, and Congress decided NBC was getting a little too big for its monopolistic britches and made them sell off part of their broadcast network. And that part became ABC. They all abandoned radio and switched to TV in the 40s and 50s when it became clear that America was leaving the former for the latter. But what is a broadcast network? When you sit down to watch the latest episode of NCICSI Cleveland 911, or whatever show Mark Harmon is on right now, you are not actually watching CBS. There is no such thing as CBS, not in your home usually. What you are watching is a local affiliate, WIVB in Buffalo, WGCL in Atlanta, KWTX in Waco, KYES in Anchorage. These are all individual stations with their own management and producers and staff that broadcast television through the air to their communities and the surrounding areas. CBS isn't a channel, it's a collective, a network, of these local stations to whom they lease their programming. Their primetime lineup of sitcoms and procedural dramas, their sporting events, their late-night talk shows. The affiliates air these things as part of the network and schedule them when and where the network wants. So when you're cheering on hometown hero Michael Phelps as he's winning his, uh, I don't know, 187th gold medal, the content is being created by NBC, but it's WBAL in Baltimore that beams it into your home. For the times in the schedule not airing ABC content, it's up to WTVC in Chattanooga to fill the time. Some is done with local programming, including, of course, the nightly news, but that's only an hour a night. To plug the holes in their broadcast day, they turn to syndication. A syndicated show is one without a network home, one that is not part of the primetime package that NBC gives to WPTV in West Palm Beach. Syndicated programs are leased directly to local affiliate stations. Then it's up to them to decide when to put them on, although, you know, there's some contract stuff in there, how to market them, how much ad time will cost. In some places, it's Wheel of Fortune, then Jeopardy. And in others, it's Jeopardy, then Wheel of Fortune, which is, of course, the correct order. Jeopardy to make you feel dumb, and then Wheel of Fortune to make you feel better, because at least you're not this guy. Magic hand, magic band, magic. Yan, sand, van, can, jan, pan, fan, fan, wand, wand, oh! There have been a lot of popular syndicated shows. The aforementioned Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Most game shows, actually. Soul Train, Star Search, Star Trek. The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine. Uh, Babylon 5, most 80s cartoons. Xena, Warrior Princess. SCTV, The Arsenio Hall Show. Um, Small Wonder, Charles in Charge. Baywatch, other things with Nicole Eggert in them. Cops, you know, cops, uh, the Jerry Springer Show, American Gladiators, Judge Judge Judy. Syndication is a fine way to get your television show out into the world, but it is not usually a producer's first choice. Historically, first-run syndication has been seen as the place where you went when the networks didn't want you, when you couldn't cut it in the big time. Syndication is the television equivalent of a movie going straight to DVD, or, I guess, now straight to iTunes. But in 1975, 
If you wanted to be on TV, you wanted to be on a network. Jim Henson and the Muppets had been on all three major networks at one time or another. Their first national exposure came on NBC's Tonight Show, and of course there was Saturday Night Live, and let's not forget it was their experiment in television that brought us to the cube. The Ed Sullivan Show, and with it The Great Santa Claus Switch, was on CBS. Hey Cinderella had aired on ABC, and they had financed the two latest Muppet pilots, The Valentine Show and Sex and Violence. But none of the networks wanted to give the Muppets their own show. After CBS's rejection of the pitch reel, Bernie Burlstein continued to shop it around town, while Jim and company were over on Studio 8H, underwhelming audiences, and John Belushi with Land of the Gorge. Last week we promised you a knight in shining armor. Here he comes. In 1912, when Louis Winogrodsky was five, he and his family escaped the Russian pogroms that were terrorizing and murdering Jews in areas like Belarus and the Ukraine. They ended up in Berlin, and then London, where they settled on the East End. When he was a teenager, Louis proved to be a talented dancer. He danced professionally for a while, under the name Louis Grad, and then Lou Grade, the latter coming from a typo by a French reporter. Through dancing, he became a talent agent, and then a television producer with Associated Television, a broadcaster within the Independent Television Network, ITV, that delivered weekend programming to London and parts of the English Midlands. As ATV's managing director, Grade not only oversaw the production of several classic series, he also sold them around the world. Series like Thunderbirds, The Prisoner, and The Saint with Roger Moore, which aired in over 80 countries. He also produced The Julie Andrews Hour, a weekly variety show starring the Oscar-winning star of Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. It aired on ABC in the States and flopped, in part at least, because it went head-to-head -head with the Mary Tyler Moore show, and everyone watched the Mary Tyler Moore show. So, Julie was cancelled after one season. During one episode that season, Rolf the dog had come by to sing with Julie, just one of many variety show appearances the Muppets made that year. After the show was off the air, ABC agreed to produce five variety specials starring Andrews over the next several years, to be shot in London, overseen independently by Grade and ATV. The first of those specials was Julie on Sesame Street. Jim was still in the middle of pre-production on the Muppet Valentine show, but he, Oz, Spinney, and Jerry Nelson, along with much of their crew, flew to England to take the special. Welcome to one of the nicest streets I know, Sesame Street. Now, like a lot of other streets, there's nothing very special about the way it looks. But millions of people visit it every day, so it must have something. And I think I know what that something is. It's love and warmth and kindness and understanding. Hey, sweetheart! Would you stop doing that? Well, would you mind holding it down? You're really starting to bug me. Well, I humbly apologize. Yeah. I know who you are now. You're Oscar the Grouch. No, I'm Donnie Osmond. During the production, Jim caught the eye of Lord Lou Grade, who had been knighted in 1969 as a life peer. Which means his, uh, he's a baron, right? But is, uh, he's the baron of Elstree. But his title cannot be passed on uh, hereditarily. Grade saw the same thing in Jim that so many others already had for the last two decades. All the way back to WTOP and the Junior Morning Show. His work ethic, his, his leadership. In Grade's words, he was struck with Jim's originality and humor. So a few years later, when CBS passed on the seemingly undeniable Muppet Show pitch reel, Bernie Brillstein and David Laser showed it to Lord Lou Grade. 
The next day, he told them he wanted to make the deal. To make a Muppet show. A full season. But it had to shoot at his studios in England. But it would also be syndicated. Brillstein realized that might be a tough sell to Henson. The Muppet Musicians of Bremen and The Frog Prince had both been syndicated, but Jim's vision for The Muppet Show was a mainstream, primetime network program. After all this work, all this time, and with all he had built, why should his TV show go straight to DVD? But in the States, the FCC had just taken the time slot between 7.30 and 8 o'clock from the networks and given it to local stations to do with what they wanted. And Grade promised that that's when this would air. He would make sure of it. 7.30 p.m. was a pretty great time for an all-ages family show. Probably the perfect time. Pretty sure Jim would be okay with this, and once the negotiating dust had settled, Brillstein, Laser, and Grade had a deal that they were sure Henson couldn't and wouldn't refuse. According to Frank Oz, they were right. Jim took me aside and said... We just, we just signed for 24 half-hour, guaranteed half-hour shows in London with Lou Grade. Now, that's extraordinary. High budget. That's extraordinary. Nobody gets 24. Yeah, I think you have three episodes and now you're canceled. 24 guaranteed episodes at 125 grand each. Three million for the season. A real budget. A studio all to themselves. And unimpeded creative control. It was time to pack up. The Muppets were going to England. Welcome to Great Britain. Great Britain? We're actually in Great Britain. Oh no, we'll never get to England now. It did mean saying goodbye to Saturday Night Live. It was by all accounts a mutual and respectful separation, but no one missed the mucking puppets after they were gone. They just didn't vibe with what the show had become. One caveat that Grade did put on The Muppet Show was that they needed an experienced television variety writer to lead the staff. Jim had wanted Jerry Jewell, who had been the voice of The Muppets for so many years, but Grade insisted. They brought on Jack Burns, a stand-up comic who had written for Hee Haw and Flip Wilson. Jim asked Jerry to come to London anyway, and to help them make the show. As unhappy as he was with the situation, Jerry never wanted to disappoint Jim even if that meant having to report to an outside writer after the years he had put in with the company. He told him he'd be there. Henson, Jewell, and Burns had a hard time coming up with a format to the show, especially the setting. Both the Valentine special and Sex and Violence had lacked a sense of place. The sets had been generic, and it was never quite clear where the Muppets were and why. They came to the idea of a show within a show where we would watch the Muppets putting on a vaudeville review in an old rundown theater, as well as the behind-the-scenes shenanigans as Kermit tried to keep everything on track. Jewel and Byrne started working on two pilot scripts that would be shot to give Lou Grade something to show potential affiliates. Much of the success of the show would hinge on pre-selling it to as many American markets as possible. It would also give them practice making the show to work out kinks to see if the idea even worked while they were moving the entire operation to London, including building a new Muppet workshop at Elstree Studios. The new format also required human guest stars every week. For these first two episodes, it would be hard to get any major star to come aboard, 
The Muppets had made many famous friends over the years of doing variety shows and specials, but this was a new show, a syndicated show, and the host would have to come to London to film. To book the first two guests, they turned to the guy with the thickest Rolodex. The first three guests were three friends of mine who did favors. It's really interesting. Ruth Buzzy, Connie Stevens, and Juliet Prowse. We couldn't get anyone else. I mean, that was... But they were semi-stars, big, semi-big names, and they did the show for me, and they were terrific. The first two episodes, with hosts Juliet Prowse and Connie Stevens, were shot over six days at the end of January in 1976. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss Juliet Prowse! So, Nick, episode 101, you obviously already knew who Juliet Prowse is, right? Uh, that's a bold assumption. I like the idea of knowing who she was. We're going to play this game as we go through all five seasons uh, for both of us. I need to keep our audience's expectations low. I'm not very well cultured. But it, it was a very enjoyable episode. It's got some of, like, out of the gate, it has some of my all-time favorite sketches from The Muppet Show. We're going to do what we've been doing, which is we're going to run down new characters. We're going to kind of give you a run through. But this is episode 101 of The Muppet Show. But before we do that, we have to talk about a few things. Firstly, viewing order. We are going to be watching The Muppet Show in production order for a couple of reasons. One, because we think that is going to give us the most accurate representation of the development of the show in the same spirit of us watching everything else chronologically. Two, this is how they are on the DVDs, is they are in production order. And three, there is no definitive release chronology because it was a syndicated show. And because it was also popular in the UK at the same time, different episodes aired at different times and, and in different orders. So there's really no, like, you can't say, like, this episode debuted, the, you know, there's, there's just no de definitive order. So we're going to go in production order. What that does, however, is it starts us off with episodes 101 and 102, which were pilots. They were the first two episodes when they had made the deal with Lou Gray to come over to the UK and make The Muppet Show. They needed something, a couple of episodes, that Grade could take out to networks and try to pre-sell the show into different markets. And so the Muppet crew rushed over to England and made these two test episodes. These test episodes are not what we watched. Those test episodes are in, I believe, at the Museum of Television and Radio, the Paley Center, and not available anywhere else that I can tell. So what ended up happening was they take these pilot episodes, they did sell their markets with them, but through the course of the season, as they got to know their characters better and got to know the show better, later in the year, they went back and they reshot footage and cut footage, and completely remade these two episodes into episodes of the show that they had been making through the whole season, and not these original pilot presentations. I'm not going to walk through all the changes between the pilot version of 101 and the official version of 101, the DVD version, but if you want to read about it, you should go to MuppetCentral.com, great website, and they have transcripts for all these different things. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the transcript for the original unaired pilot episode starring Juliet Prowse. If I ever get to New York to watch it, I will come back with a more live review. So these episodes that we're watching, again, they were made first, but they weren't. 
if that makes sense. Both of these actually aired later in the season, sometimes at the end of the season. Episode 101 that we're talking about with Julia Prowse was shot January 29th through 31st of 1976. It didn't air in the U.S. till April of 1977. Juliet Prowse was a dancer. She was born in Bombay, India in 1936, making her the same age as Jim Henson. She grew up in South Africa and was dancing in a club in Paris when she was discovered by a Hollywood talent agent. Her first film role was in the 20th Century Fox musical Can Can, where she was just a supporting character but widely regarded as like the best part of the film. On that set, she met Frank Sinatra, who she was briefly engaged to. She then co-starred with Elvis on his first post-war role, G.I. Blues, which, actually funny enough, uh, uh, Don Celine also worked on that. And while doing that, had a pretty passionate affair with the king of rock and roll himself. After that, she did a lot of television and headlined a lot of shows in Vegas, but her movie career never quite panned out. One quick, weird trivia piece about Miss Prowse. In 1987, she was mauled by the same 80-pound leopard on two separate occasions. So I thought that was kind of weird. She sadly uh, died of pancreatic cancer in 1996 at the age of 60. Way too young. Juliet Prowse was one of the two people that Bernie Brillstein, two or three people that Bernie Brillstein reached out to when he needed guests for these original pilots. And they were clients of his, friends of his. Episode 101 was directed by Peter Harris, who would go on to direct more than half of the episodes. It was written by Jim Henson, Jerry Jewell, and a newcomer, Jack Burns, uh, the experienced variety show comedy writer that Lou Grade had insisted be the head writer of the show. This being the first episode, we have some new faces. We are introduced in this episode to, well, first of all, do, do we count Gonzo as a new face? I'm going to say no, just because even within the context of the show, we see some of the characters iterating a little bit. Yeah. Both Fozzie and uh, Miss Piggy are going to iterate. Piggy iterates over the course of this episode. She has two very different voices. She does, but that's more of a result of uh, the Frankenstein nature of these two episodes. Everything in the episode, any of the backstage stuff was shot much later to the season. Any of the stuff with the guest star was from the original production, right? They didn't bring the guest star back for the reshoots. So as the season went on, things would change. So the last time we saw Gonzo, he was named Snarl. He was a frackle. So, you know, this is the first time we see Gonzo voiced and operated by Dave Goles. This is, however, the first time we get to meet Fozzie Bear. Designed by Michael Frith and built by Bonnie Erickson. Fozzie's a great creation. Obviously, one of Frank Oz's signature characters. But this is the first time we're seeing Fozzie. We're going to talk about some of the problems with Fozzie when the show started. This is our introduction to Scooter, the gopher. It's the first time we're seeing him played by the great Richard Hunt. Oh, and Muppy. <laughs> and there's Muppy the dog. So you had like Rolf, and then you had Rufus, who we talked about being kind of like a more rudimentary version of Rolf. Muppy is kind of a more rudimentary version of Rufus. <laughs> it kind of seemed, I, I wasn't sure if it was the same Muppet or not. I, I don't think it's the same. I don't think it's the same puppet. To be fair, Muppy will be, is played by Dave Goals as a puppet, but he is also depicted in the episode by a real dog in certain shots. Because this is the first episode, we're going to talk through it a little bit more than we will the later episodes, because I want to talk about the opening theme. Very iconic. Uh, the opening theme was written by Jim Henson and a guy named Sam Pottle, who would also write many songs for Sesame Street, but died way too young at the age of 44, I found in his uh, biography. 
we're going to talk a little bit about how the opening credits roll. The season one opening number is different than it's going to be in season two and season three. They, to use your favorite words, they're going to iterate on it and they're going to adapt it and change it over time. And, and you're going to see it get bigger and look a little nicer and more expensive. We open with the title card for the Muppet Show and Kermit, you know, in there welcoming us to the Muppet Show. It's kind of cheap looking. Uh, then, then as the music starts, we get there our choruses, our chorus lines, right? Uh, we get uh, a chorus of female puppets that come out singing. We get uh, Janice wearing a wig, which is kind of weird. Get Piggy, a girl called the Trumpet Girl, who is part of the the Muppet Orchestra, and a female whatnot, just kind of a generic whatnot. And then it cuts to the other side, of course, with the uh, male kind of chorus line. And we're going to see a horned kind of whatnot, a blue frackle, a random pig, and a green frackle. Now, originally, everyone kind of knows the lyrics to the Muppet Show or show theme, or if you're listening to this, you probably do. But in the pilot version, it was originally twice as long. The first line by the um, male chorus is, it's time to put on makeup, it's time to dress up right which is how it is, but originally it said, you'll see the strangest creatures on The Muppet Show tonight. And then a chorus of frogs and chickens come out, along with T.R. Rooster from uh, Muppet Musicians of Bremen. And they sing a little bit, and then T.R. would say, now here's our leader, Kermit the Frog. And then Kermit would come out, and then he would sing a few more lines that would rhyme. He would say, this show tonight will feature a lovely song or two, and it would cut to like a clip of someone singing from the episode. We also have some dancing, if that's what pleases you. And then it would cut to, some, it would cut to like a chorus line. And Fozzie Bear will tell some jokes you never knew. And then Fozzie would come out and tell his joke. In the, the actual season one opening theme, Fozzie's joke is a different place. And then Kermit would get to his line where he says, to introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you the guest star. But then the guest star, in this case, Prouse, would sing. And she would sing, it's very nice to be here. I'm pleased to say hello. And then they get on the risers and then it says, this is why it's called The Muppet Show. So actually the song, because they cut out that part of Prowse singing, they actually miss a rhyme in the, in the song. There was supposed to be a rhyme to go with Muppet Show. What you think of as the opening to The Muppet Show, it might not seem that way if you go back and watch the season one. Because it's smaller, there's no curtains, like the, the big arches that everyone identifies with The Muppet Show. Are, are not there. Many of the characters are not there. And at the end, instead of all the Muppets and kind of this big, I don't know how to call it, this huge wall of little windows and balconies they're in. It's like that Hollywood Squares sort of set up. Because of, like, with that, instead of that, they're sitting on what looks like a wedding cake, <laughs> risers almost, as it, as it kind of ends, as they sing, this is what we call the Muppet Show. When we get to season two, you're going to see it develop a little bit. But I just thought it was interesting that it was originally like twice as long, and it probably seems like it was a, a really good idea to cut it down. The Muppet Show is divided into kind of two things, right? You have the backstage story, and then you have the show that the Muppets are putting on, right? You have, you have their, their vaudeville show. The Muppets are, they don't own the place, as we find out very quickly. They don't own the Muppet Theater, but they rent it from a guy named J.P. Gross. And... They are putting on a vaudeville show every night. And so we're going to watch the acts, and then we're going to watch what's going on behind the scenes. We have our opening theme. And then Kermit comes out. Thank you, thank you. Hey, listen, it's another great show, folks. I mean, tonight our guest star is one of the truly great dancers of the world, 
the one and only Miss Julia Prouse. And if that weren't enough, we've also got Manamana, whatever that means. And we get maybe the most famous Muppet sketch of all time. Have you and I talked about Manamana yet? I think we did earlier. We talked about the origins. As I say that, I'm not sure if that's something we talked about on record or not. No, I know I, I talk about it on the Sullivan episode because they did do it on Sullivan. But what's funny is the song for Menomina was uh, <laughs> Jim found in a Swedish Mondo film, which is kind of a somewhat, it's kind of a pornographic documentary. Like they're, they're these kind of like slice of life documentaries, but they usually were about sex. And him and Frank... <laughs> Uh, went and saw it in the theater because, you know, that was something you did in the 70s. And Frank got something very different from it. And Jim came out with the song <laughs> with Manamana, uh, which was just kind of a song that was sang in the background. It's a nonsense song. It is Jim Henson and Frank Oz in perfect harmony. And this is probably the most famous version of it, right? Because it's what opens the, what uh, at least now is the first episode of The Muppet Show. It's very funny, and uh, everyone knows it. It's great. Every time they did Menomina, they added a little tweak here and there. And this one adds the tweak at the end of him actually <laughs> running out of the studio, out of the theater, <laughs> leaving the theater, and then calling back in for Kermit. It is interesting watching these two episodes. It feels like they thought Menomina was going to be a bigger character, and then they just decided to dump him. He does make a brief appearance in the second episode, which is actually a really good sketch. Well, it was, yeah, and I, I like him, but like, I guess they figured out that he just wasn't, I don't know, they just never brought in, he he was supposed to be one of the big characters, I guess, and it, it just never happened. They gave all of his parts to Animal? Kinda, yeah, he kinda is replaced by Animal. Now, we'd already seen Animal on the Sex and Violence special, but he hasn't shown up on here yet. So yeah, then we go backstage, and there's a very funny bit. What's going, what is Kermit doing? He's drinking through a straw. And he does that uh, sort of proto-office thing where he looks at the camera and just says, think about this for a second. It is a moment early on letting us know that this show's going to get meta and that there is... Here's the thing about The Muppet Show. There is no fourth wall. They are constantly, throughout the whole show, looking straight at the camera and delivering lines and jokes and pleading for things. Yeah, so it's a nice little meta joke. Weird little moment. All of the backstage stuff in this is new. Shot later in the season and then edited into the original pilot. So the backstage storyline for this one is Scooter's uncle owns the theater. And Scooter in the early in the first season of the Muppet Show is a real dick about it. <laughs> always holding it over Kermit's head. And Kermit at the end of the day is a capitalist and he always makes the right decisions for himself, <laughs> <laughs> which is do whatever Scooter wants. It's it's very self-referential too because he'll always frame his responses as uh, well, it sounds, says the frog, displaying his artistic judgment, sappy. Gee, my uncle thought uh, it was... It sounds, says the frog, displaying his will to survive, wonderful. He kind of gives himself stage directions. Mm -hmm. So what Scooter and Muppy want to do, uh, Muppy is his uncle's dog, is they want to do a song. They want to get on the show and do a, a, an act called Simon Smith and His Dancing Dog. Kermit thinks it sounds stupid, but Scooter tells him that yeah, my uncle really wants to see it. And, you know, well, so that's kind of our backstage storyline is going to be Scooter. And it's it's very displaced from everything else. You know, you'll see in these early episodes and probably maybe in the first season or two, the backstage story is usually pretty isolated from the things on stage. They tie in, 
they use shots to tie him in, but the storyline from the backstage doesn't usually overlap. The next thing we see is, as well as tracking characters, we're also going to kind of track, uh, I don't know what to call them, sketch, skits, right? We're going we're gonna to track recurring skits. We're, we're going to see our first occasion of the great Gonzo. Thank you. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I will eat this rubber tire to the music of the flight of the bumblebee. <laughs> this will be a recurring thing with Gonzo, where he will try to do something ridiculous to some sort of piece of music. Uh, classy, A classy piece of music to do something very unclassy to. Doesn't go well. But it does introduce us to, well, we've seen him before, but it puts him in their proper place at the end, right? Is uh, the two old men. He's doing it. He's eating a tire. Amazing. Astounding. Boring. You know, we saw them in the, what was it? It was in the Sex and Violence special. We saw them in Sex and Violence in the pilot, but they were just sitting in armchairs not doing anything. Now they're in their proper place. They are the two old hecklers in the balcony. They are variably between like 75 and 150. I can't figure it out. It's the first time we get to see them after Gonzo's uh, bit doesn't quite go well. Uh, I, I do like that when, when uh, uh, Gonzo's getting booed off stage. Uh, yokos! <laughs> what do they know about art? I always love that Gonzo, like, and it, it is, it is, Nice to point out that if we Gonzo in this one again is performed by Dave Goals, but doesn't quite look like the Gonzo a modern viewer would recognize. He's not; his eyes are kind of squinty. He's he's not as expressive. He's he's a little more sad looking than the Gonzo that you're going to get used to, and that's you know going to going to kind of be his look through the whole first season. So then, you know, the backstage story continues a little bit where it turns out Muppy wants its own dressing room. Muppy turns out to be very, very uh, demanding. Kermit gives Muppy a, an inch <laughs> to, do a, to do a bit and uh, tries to take a couple miles. Um, like, Muppy will show up a few times, but Muppy will eventually be replaced by another character's annoying dog <laughs> and uh, have a, a much bigger part. Fufu will have a much, much bigger part. So then what happens is we're still backstage as Kermit's talking to Muppy. And then there's this kind of clever cut because then Juliet Prowse, our, our guest star, comes out of her dressing room. Now, this was shot for the original pilot. The, the stuff with Scooter and Muppy wasn't. So they had to kind of chop this stuff together to make it kind of seamless. And Juliet Prowse kind of comes down the stairway, comes out of her dressing room. The, the guest stars always had the dressing room. If, you, if you're looking at the Muppets, if you're looking backstage at the Muppet show and you look up the stairs, there's two, uh, two, do two dressing room doors up top, two or three. And the guest star always has like the one on the left. And Juliet Prowse comes down and her and Kermit. All right, Nick, we're going to say it, right? We're going to talk about this a lot. Kermit's a player. He's, uh, he's got a lot of aspirations. I mean, the, the, you know, I joked earlier, you know, the ladies love Cool K, but man, every single one of them, like, uh, the girls like Kermit. So uh, he flirts with her a little bit, I guess. Um, oh, and she mentions that she's never had to share, a, 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 I don't know, a dressing room with someone who eats a tire or something like that. Originally uh, in the pilot, this sketch went a little longer and Manamana made an appearance, apparently. Hmm. Then we get to... What is really Juliet Prowse's only act <laughs> in the whole episode? I was wondering that about that a little bit, specifically because to us, this is the Muppet Show, right? This is its format is something that we've we've 
grown accustomed to, but especially in that first episode, as they're trying to find their footing, I wondered just how many things they were referring back to from earlier shows or things like that. And if it is a variety show, I mean, we would understand it from the perspective that everyone is expected to have some sort of comedic chops and minor acting ability. But in those early stages, they might have just wanted people to fill time. Just like with Saturday Night Live, right? You want to you wanna build, you at least want to build some of the show around the guest star. And in this case, they had Juliet Prowse, who did some acting and stuff, but was mostly just a dancer. And so, I, I, I don't know. I, I found it weird watching it. She only has this one number, and it's like in the middle of the episode. It's not even the finale. She comes out and she dances to Scott Joplin's Solace, which is a um, kind of a ragtime song. And the reason why they probably used it is it had just been popularized by its use in the film The Sting a couple years before, the Academy Award Best Picture winning movie The Sting. It's kind of a boring bit, I thought. I don't know. What'd you, what'd you get out of the dancing? It's cool because it's like it uses that blacklight theater technique. That's kind of what I was thinking is this was them showing off more of their technical prowess. It's not something that's going to carry in terms of content, and it, it felt like it ran a little bit long, but it was mostly them just showing, look at what we can do with all these different puppets. Yeah, the whole scene is kind of an optical effect. It's not even really there. She's dancing with these kind of green gazelles, I think they call them. And yeah, and it uses this chroma key where the people are dressed in, you know, where the, the puppeteers are dressed in black against a black screen or green against a green screen or whatever and they they use the they use the optical effects to key it out and so you only see the the muppets even though there's someone holding it but i think you're right though i think it does go on i don't know probably about a minute too long and then at the end though juliet vanishes which leads to statler and waldorf Waldorf wondering how she manages to make herself vanish and statler apparently has magical powers he just really has to hold his breath and then he disappears and now we get to the first ongoing thing, but not the first time we've seen it, At the Dance. At the Dance was something that was in Sex and Violence, which is, of course, the laugh-in style sketch where four or five couples of Muppets are dancing to a waltz and telling bad jokes. Um, it was in the Sex and Violence pilot, and we're back here. In the early times for Miss Piggy, in this first half of the first season or whatever, she would get how to say this without being crass, she would get traded back and forth between a couple of men. Sometimes she was played by Frank Oz, and sometimes she was played by Richard Hunt. And you can always tell by the voice. In this At The Dance sequence, she's definitely played by Richard Hunt. That's proof, again, that this sequence is from the pilot. I think by the t- I think any of the times you hear Piggy with Frank Oz's voice, or with, with, with what we consider Frank Oz's Piggy voice, that's going to be from the reshoots. At the Dance is just going to be one of those bits that we see. I think it only lasts about a season, maybe a season and a half. But At the Dance is one of the recurring bits. It's got a couple of funny jokes. George is, was it Mildred's Dancing with George? It's At the Dance. It's not my favorite of the recurring sketches. Next up is, this show was made in the UK. Actually, you can almost consider The Muppet Show a British show. It's made by British money. It was it was, uh, it was, it was financed by British money. It was produced in England with mostly British crew. And it also aired on British television. But British television at the time, their commercial breaks were two minutes shorter. Say an American television show in a half hour had eight minutes of commercials, meaning it was only a 22-minute show. The British equivalent would only have six minutes of commercials. So 
they had these things that they would shoot called their, we call them the UK spots, which are things that only originally only aired in the UK. And they're usually just standalone, usually musical numbers that completely, now they're all on the DVDs. The, they, when they put the DVDs together, they put the UK spots on them. So we're not missing those. Rolf is going to be the star of many of them. And uh, in this one, he sings a song called You and I and George. <laughs> um, I just want to say it's really nice to see Rolf interacting with the rest of the Muppets. This is the same Rolf that we saw on Jimmy Dean. And he seems so intrinsic to the fabric of the Muppets as we know them. But for a long time, he was just sort of sitting on a shelf while they tried to figure out other things. One thing you're going to notice in the Muppet show is uh, Rolf and Kermit don't interact very much. Piggy and Fozzie don't interact very much. You don't see Link Hogthrob hanging out with Dr. Teeth. Because of, you know, you have your five or six performers on the show, uh, you don't tend to see two characters by the same performer in a scene together. So Rolf, will notice, is very rarely backstage. I don't know, I don't know how many times actually through the whole show we're going to see Rolf backstage. Rolf is pretty much simply an on-stage character. You see him every once in a while, but he's never going to talk. You're never going to see a conversation with him because he's Henson, Kermit is Henson, and they were very kind of sticklers about that. If there was going to be dialogue, if there was going to be interaction, they wanted, those were their characters. That's why when you get to the Muppet movie and Rolf and Kermit sing a duet together, it was kind of a big deal. So yeah, but it's nice you have Rolf singing this really silly song that I couldn't find much about. This is written by a guy named Red Kelly, but I don't, I don't know much else about it, but it's, it's just a little funny bit. So then there's also, again, another running skit called Talk Spot. When they made the original two pilots, Lou Grade actually wasn't very happy with them because he thought they were too British, funny enough. He thought that, that being in England and having an English crew had somehow adversely rubbed off on them. And Talk Spot is kind of an example of this kind of Talk Spot. The Talk Spots are just a time for Kermit, usually, usually Kermit, sometimes others, to just sit down and talk with the host. And this one is just, this is where Kermit really eats Mackin. You know, your average frog doesn't have a lot going for him in the looks department. Oh, I don't know. I think you're quite attractive. Really? Mm-hmm. You're not just saying that because you're a guest. Well, certainly not. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that you are the Robert Redford of frogs. Oh, wow. Hey, hey listen, everybody. Did you hear that? Juliet Prowse thinks I'm the Robert Redford of frogs. Hey, you're going to be coming back on this show a lot. <laughs> Hey, hey, listen, have you ever kissed Robert Redford? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, how about uh, <clears throat> kissing the next best thing? You mean to tell me that Paul Newman is here? <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, she kisses him anyway. The talk spots will fade away as well, because they're just kind of not especially funny, kind of sweet, I guess. Now we get to one of my most, to me, one of the most fascinating things about this kind of uh, Frankenstein's monster of a of a of an episode. This is we go backstage. Well, the fr- we go backstage and we find out that Muppy, who uh, has been told that Muppy can do an act now, wants to rename <laughs> the show the Muppy Show. Kermit does not react well to that. It's awesome and confusing at the same time. So Fozzie comes out wearing a cowboy hat and he comes up to Kermit, says, "Hey, Kermit, does this sound like John Wayne?" And Kermit's like, "Whatever, I guess." And Fozzie leaves to go into a sketch. And the next sketch is this Western called Cowboy Time, in which Fozzie uses this deep voice. Fozzie was a tough character for people to figure out, for Frank to figure out. How do you take a guy who is bad at his job, a comedian who fails constantly, and make him funny 
and bearable, no pun intended, and likable. While he's just, instead of just being awkward and (laughs) and hard to watch. Part of that was the voice. Frank had a hard time finding the voice. And so when they're doing this sketch, Cowboy Time, which we will talk about, but Cowboy Time, Fozzie's doing this deep voice. That was originally (laughs) Frank's voice for Fozzie. And so what they did was that little bit of Fozzie coming out and saying, Does this sound like John Wayne? Is a Band-Aid. That's a reshoot where they went in and they had Fozzie say, they, they made it out like instead of that being Fozzie's voice, that Fozzie was putting on a voice. It was a very clever little band-aid that they put on the scene. I guess here's my question. Could they, couldn't they have just dubbed it over? <laughs> they could have, but they were also still, I feel like at this point, they're still figuring out who Fozzie was. It's hard to think. They shoot this in January and they're probably in June, July, August, maybe, maybe a little earlier when they shoot the new footage for it. So he's figured him out by then. But anyway, it's just a weird little, it's a weird little fix that they use to try to explain away Fozzie's weird voice for these first couple episodes. Because like I said, they actually ended, they're the first, it's the first episode, but it aired near the end of the season. Then we get into Cowboy Time, which is one of the like, almost set pieces, I guess. It reminded me of the the Salmon Friends bit a little bit. Yeah, it was a little bit like Pun Smoke, where uh, again, here we have, we have Rolf is in the sketch playing the Western piano player. And uh, Fozzie plays Kid Fozzie, who's an outlaw, who comes to town. He doesn't seem as dangerous because <laughs> um, his weapon of choice is, um, what, are, what does he have for his weapons? I think the first one was a uh, pickle because they're talking about uh, gherkins. Yes, he, he has, he has uh, instead of six shooters, he has pickles. And, uh, and then there's a great moment where the, the bartender is like, those are just pickles. And Fozzie shoots up the bar and he's like, I'm sorry, kid. I didn't know the pickles were loaded. I don't know. It's 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 kind of funny. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this bit's not great. I don't remember. It's like again, it's an early early sketch. But uh, uh, Fozzie's trying to. I, I think he's he's all backwards, right? He's like, all right, everybody, reach for the floor. <laughs> Beg pardon. Reach for the floor. This is a stick down. And it ends with an explosion. Fozzie tries to stab him with a banana. I think tries to stab Rolf with a banana because he thinks it's his knife. And then there was, was it an apple? That's got a fuse in it. It didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's the Muppet Show. It ended with an explosion, so it worked okay. (laughs) So then we get a blackout. And a blackout is an old vaudeville term of of just a little thing, like a literally like a two-line joke that you would have on stage before you close the curtain or turn the lights off. And so on the Muppet Show, the blackouts are these kind of little interstitials where they're usually kind of in front of this kind of generic wall set. Um, in this one, it's just Zoot and Juliet Prowse. Uh, Zoot, the, uh, as Dave Goals called Zoot, the, uh, what's it called him? The old burnt out musician. And it's just a bit where he asked Juliet a joke about what she's wearing on her neck and it, she's wearing like a shawl and it turns out the shawl's alive and it, you know, this one-eyed kind of creepy monster with a, with a Frank Oz voice. But these blackouts are going to kind of come and go, but they're just little like, what, 10, 15 second jokes that are apropos of nothing, right? They're, they're very non sequitur, just a place to put a joke, usually used in, in a transition way to either get you, in, you know, usually to get you like out to commercial or something. It does seem something like a palate cleanser. Yeah, like uh, like you call a bumper on a TV show, right? An interstitial. Um, it, it's just a little, little bit. I, I, again, I think that's very laugh-in inspired. So then we got to kind of get to the end of the backstage drama, which is Muppy, because Kermit will not change the name of the show to The Muppy Show, Muppy has refused to go on. And Scooter is like, what am I going to do? And Fozzie, who 
has not got a... It's kind of funny. Fozzie complains that he hasn't had a bit on this week, but he just had this entire cowboy sketch. I think the setup there was that it would be like him performing his uh, his one-man show, which... It's stand-up. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, he still didn't end up doing, but... Simon Smith and his amazing dancing dog is not a song. But Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear is a song written by Randy Newman. Kermit's like, hey, Fozzie, I can get you on stage. <laughs> we get Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear. Which is a really cool musical number uh, with yeah. uh, Jerry, with Scooter and Fozzie. Scooter doesn't perform in that many direct skits. He gets to sing more and more as the show goes on. Hmm. You know, Richard Hunt had a nice voice. I really like the way Scooter sings. I'm thinking of a particular song he sings in the episode where Mark Hamill and uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 show up. He has a really hmm. great song in that one. Yeah, it's a it's a fun song, uh, and and I, I like how he brings out Fozzie with a, a leash on because Fozzie at first doesn't know what's going on, but then Fozzie starts to realize it's working, so he starts to start hamming it up mm-hmm. and playing to the camera. It's really funny. I was watching it with my daughter today, and that that was definitely her favorite part of that episode was just the way Fozzie's kind of shuffling around, and and that is a a scene that was shot later in the production, and it feels much more like the Fozzie Bear that we know. That's what's interesting about these first two episodes is they actually feel pretty polished. Because they were revamped. Right, because they had a lot of practice under the build. I actually think we're going to see, if I had to guess, that like episodes, say, like three, four, or five, might actually seem less polished than one and two because of that. Then we get to, uh, I believe, your favorite part, which is Temptation. This is one of my all-time favorite Muppet sketches, and I'm pretty sure this is where they uh, they cement the relationship between Piggy and Kermit. It's where they it's where they first establish it. Yeah, he actually says Piggy my love, Piggy honey, and she says Kermit my love. It seemed like it was a one-sided attraction in the way that this played out. Uh, like under different circumstances, that particular progression might be more disturbing, but it's it's obviously intended for com- comedy here. But you just see Piggy working her way down the chorus line. Oh, I'm getting out of myself. It opens with Kermit talking to the Glee Club, which is comprised of a, a bunch of different animal muppets. Yeah, I would like to po- I would like to point out just you said the Glee Club is made of oh, we talked about this earlier of made of pigs, chickens and frogs. Literally puppets left over from the Sex and Violence special from Muppet Musicians of Bremen and from the Frog Prince. But yeah, and so, and, Kerm- and Kermit's like the leader of the Glee Club. And he he starts condu- trying to conduct and they compliment him on his ability to swing a stick around. Um and then he's like, "Well, thank you very much, but I would really like it." I'm- he basically tries to get all of them to sing. They sing a bunch of different songs, and then they start singing Temptation, and he offers Piggy the solo. And I think right before that, she had complimented him on something. Like, I, the impression I got was that was when she she knew that she was sort of into... Not saying they are necessarily planning months and months ahead for her to be super into Kermit, but her voice does sound... I'm pretty sure Frank Oz was her speaking voice here. Yeah, Frank is her speaking voice, but then when she starts singing, it's Richard Hunt. They would pre-record the music. You know, when they were shooting the show, there was a day, you know, they would do the writing and all that stuff. But before they went into production for each episode, there was a day they would go in and record all the music. Hmm. And and I think maybe that was already pre-recorded. So they just, they already had the Richard Hunt vocal for it. The scene progress, or the scene is a progressive invasion of Kermit's privacy, though. (laughs) Yeah, yes. By the time you get to the end of it, you see, like the way that they set up, uh, Miss Piggy's Muppet, you spend so much time looking at the roof of her mouth 
And it's like, it's vaguely disturbing, but also I noticed that too. I couldn't stop laughing. I noticed that too. There's a weird, there's still just cloth, you know? So there's a, she's got some weird deformities going on. And then she, she effectively pounces. This establishes their relationship right off the bat. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we, we may think of it something in develop, it, that it developed over time and it did, but in this one, she just jumps his bones. And you see him trying to keep composure the entire time too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Piggy gets, uh, Piggy gets pretty riled up <laughs> and, uh, while singing this song, I think temptation, I don't even know the song. I think it's from like a old Bing Crosby film or something. I only know it from this sketch. I know like Perry Como it would sing it. The fact that she gets so worked up by this song that she basically, I mean, it's not okay. She completely sexually assaults him uh, in front of all these people. Uh, a little note for people if they want to watch, if you right at the end of the sketch, at, right as Piggy literally tackles Kermit out of frame because <laughs> she is assaulting him. For about two or three seconds, you can see Dave Goles' face, the puppeteer. He's behind the pigs and um, or behind the frogs. And after a couple of seconds, the frogs close in and... and cover up his face but you can actually see his face in the uh in the show there's a, there's going to be some of those along the way i mean there's no way there's not going to but it's one of those uh, muppet bits where you know things start off kind of slow and genteel and then they build and build and build to something insane it doesn't feel like a finale to me though the guest star is not in the finale <laughs> well the thing is with both of these episodes i was surprised when they ended yeah like there's we've got a variety show we we get a bunch of different sketches but we don't see, like, you've got the, the B story that's going on backstage, but there's not really that same sense of progression or building on things. The ratio of backstage to onstage varies per episode as the show goes on. As our characters develop more, there's going to be whole storylines fl- where Floyd and Piggy hate each other and they're battling it out. And like just characters that you'd never thought would come together. And there's there's going to be all sorts of stuff backstage. Actually, some of my favorite Muppet stuff from the shows is actually the backstage stuff. In this case, the Muppy storyline is just uh, it's just glue to hold it all together and also to replace things that they had in the original that didn't work. It is a weird one to go out on. Like, I would almost think that Simon Smith and his dancing bear would be a better kind of closing number. Yeah, because they've been building steam to it all episode. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought was weird about it was that they they build through the whole episodes towards it, through the whole episode towards it, and then they do it and you're like, oh, this must be the finale. And then... No, we have a whole other bit. And not only that, but we haven't seen the guest star in forever. The last time you saw Juliet Prowse at this point was in that little uh, blackout with her with the with Zoot. Mm -hmm. And you don't see her again until the very end. It's it's in the future. They would learn to utilize their guest stars better. We'll just say. And then it ends with the very kind of traditional. These first couple, it's just Kermit and the guest star. And they, they present the guest star with a gift. Which I would love to receive. They they made a Muppet based on each guest star. Only the first two. Kermit says in there, he's like, this is our, our time-honored tradition of giving you a Muppet likeness of yourself. This will, this will be in exactly two episodes, these two episodes we're talking about. This tradition of giving a guest a copy of themselves at the end is going to go away. There will be other ones. I'm thinking when uh, Paul Williams comes on, they, there's a Paul Williams puppet they make. And there are others, obviously. And we've talked about the um, Jim Henson, Jerry Nelson, and Frank Oz, uh, country singer Muppets. In these first two episodes, yeah, Kermit gifts the guest star a Muppet likeness of themselves that comes out and has their voice. And um, as cool as it is, like, it's also kind of (laughs) creepy. A little bit. You get to go home with your own homunculus. 
yeah, I mean, you know, I'll take it. But uh, <laughs> in these kind of sign-offs, it's just Kermit and the guest star. You know, in, in later episodes, you're going to get the whole gang out there. It's kind of like Saturday Night Live where you're going to get, you know. One thing to point out, and then you get to the closing credits that we all know. Sadly, um, we do notice that, well, I don't know, depends on his aspirations, that that uh, Nigel, the host of the Muppet Sex and Violence pilot, is now the um, conductor of the orchestra. Whether you consider that a promotion or not, I'll leave it up to you. But he is no longer the host. Nor should he be, but he, he kind of gets shoved down into the orchestra pit. He seems more comfortable there, though. He absolutely, he absolutely does. A couple of things real quick that are missing from the pilot. There was a, a different, there was original animal was originally in this episode and he had a drum solo that got cut out. This version uses several different takes. Then, you know, it uses some of the same scenes as the pilot did, but it uses different takes and different edits and different angles. And there was a scene where Kermit, again, going with this theme where there was a, a, a whatnot puppet uh, that they called Roxanne that uh, I think Fran Brill was operating that um, Kermit was hitting on backstage. Like flat out just macking on backstage. Listen, you know, (laughs) Jim was known to like women as well, so there's probably a little connection there. Is Juliet Prowse flirting with Kermit or is she flirting with Jim Henson? There's probably a a little bit of crossover there. Again, that's the first episode. I, I think it holds up pretty well. I would say that it does. Um, like, as, as we talked about it, 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 even saying that it doesn't necessarily have the strong ending, it doesn't mean it falls apart at the end. It just sort of stops. As far as guest hosts go, Juliet Prowse is not going to rank high on my list of guest hosts. One, they don't really let her do much. She she had personality when she spoke with Kermit. And oh, in no. her yeah. opening uh, bit, I got the impression that she might have been able to keep up with the Muppets, but I don't know enough about her as an individual. All that stuff they shot with her was very early on, so they were still learning, too. Maybe they just didn't. Maybe they had yet to figure out what to do with a guest star. Because if you think about it, Mia Farrow didn't do a ton in the Valentine special, I don't think. She, I mean, she gave someone his first real kiss. Yeah, but she like, was also pretty pregnant. I don't know how much they were actually going to let her do. But Juliet Prowse doesn't make too much of an impression. But I mean, again, she seems like she was a good dancer. Unfortunately, like, problem is her big centerpiece bit is probably my least favorite segment of the episode. It doesn't. I'm I'm conflicted because on one hand, we know The Muppet Show is a very entertaining show and kind of primarily as a comedy. And there wasn't really much in the way of comedy in that particular section. It's a variety show, and so variety shows are going to have, and we're going to see, like, yes, they're played for comedy in this, but there's going to be plenty of musical numbers, including in, in the next episode, great musical numbers that are just musical numbers. You know, they're not bits. They're just, here's a song. When they just do that, I think that stuff works really well. I, I think when it when this was just kind of this mix of her dancing and like an experimental use of these Muppets and this technology to make them vanish and... You know, it just felt like they were, I don't know, maybe reaching a little bit. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome to The Muppet Show. Hey, our special guest star is the beautiful and vivacious Miss Connie Stevens. Now, this second episode, 102, was also one of the pilots, but there's a lot less information out there about the differences between the two. I don't think the changes were as drastic, so we're not going to really get into them. We're just going to talk about this episode. So, Nick, who's Connie Stevens? 
I'm going to pretend that I knew who that was before I watched this episode, but I will also tell you up front that that would be a bald-faced lie. Yeah, you don't know who Connie Stevens I, I actually did know who Connie Stevens was. That's, that's you know, I'm one for two so far. There's an interesting bit that I'll get to in a second, but uh, Connie Stevens was born in 1938. Her first, fe- she, she began her acting career in earnest in 1957 to a teen movie called Young and Dangerous, but her real breakout was in 1958 in the movie Rockabye Baby opposite of Jerry Lewis. Um, she's still alive. She's her, her most recent acting credit was in 2019. She's also done a bit of directing and screenwriting and other things besides that. But she, her, I think she, she got into acting and singing around the same time. But one of the things that actually caught me off guard was there's a, a song by the stylistics, which I heard all throughout my childhood called bet you by golly. Wow. But I didn't realize that they were doing a cover of one of us of a song that she had initially put out. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Cool. And it, it's got a different name. I believe it's Growing Ever Stronger, but it's the exact same song uh, that was made very popular by them. One of her biggest roles was playing the role of Cricket in a TV series called Hawaiian Eye. She's also been featured on a number of different USO tours, especially in the 80s. Yeah, I do remember her being a big feature on uh, like Bob Hope USO tours. The thing is, she's always sort of tried to use TV in order to break out into the big time and be an actor, but that that shot never really seemed to fire for her. Yeah. And even in this, I don't think she did bad at all. I haven't seen... Anything else with her. Yeah, one of her acting credits placed her on Titus, and I might have seen that episode when (laughs) I was younger, but I I don't remember her from it. Right. Before we get into uh, the sketches, this one was shot in uh, January. Again, it was over the same, you know, time the first one was shot. And again, it didn't air in the U.S. until the February of the next year, so over a year later. This is really one that they kind of shoved in at the end of the season, even though it was shot second. Uh, same director, same writers. There are two other guest stars in this episode, though, that are credited. It's true. We've got Bert, we've got Ernie. That's right. We're going to we're gonna see a little bit of uh, shameless Sesame Street crossover <laughs> coming up. I was actually really curious about that, because anytime I see that, and I know we've probably touched on it before, but anytime I see that crossover and it's not Kermit being on Sesame Street, I wonder exactly, like, I, I assume that Jim got permission, but... He would have had to have gotten clearance from CTW and from Joan Cooney to use Bert and Ernie on the show. Yes. New faces. We see, we get to meet Hilda. Hilda is the uh, seamstress, uh, wardrobe mistress of the Muppet mm-hmm. show. She was played by Erin Osker, who was the only regular female performer when, when the show started. We, we see Wayne and Wanda. Now, Wayne and Wanda were originally in the 101 pilot, but they were cut out. They're played by uh, Hunt and Oscar. Wayne and Wanda are these kind of fairly talentless, over-the-top, what would you call them, like melodramatic singers. We also meet the Mutations. Uh, which are in this Connie's backup singers and dancers, but they will appear again. They're these trio they were kind of, of terrifying. Oh no, the the the, ten, the 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 mutations are scary. Yeah, they're these purple full body Muppets. Uh, they're usually dancers. I actually wrote down scary looking. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I did note someone on, on on the Muppet Wiki it, it mentioned that they have different heights depending on who's in the suit. Um, and you could tell like they're they're like three different heights, but it tends it depends on the puppeteer. And, and, you know, they're going to make it. Actually, I believe one of the mutations is in like the second season opening credits. I don't think you ever see the three of them together ever again. Hmm. And then this is also the first time we see the Muppet Newsman. 
It's true. He was just on for a quick second, too. He was. It was a very brief, kind of unsatisfying bit, and we'll talk about. But this is one of Henson's characters that they added, which is the 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 besotted Muppet newsman. He's a he's a Bonnie Erickson special. You can kind of tell that by looking at him. And uh, he's a he's a live hand puppet. And you know, obviously, we're going to be seeing we're going to be we're going to be talking about the newsman for five seasons. Um, he he doesn't go away. What's the backstage story of this one? I guess it's a no. It's it's really just one story. Fozzie's feeling a little insecure because Gonzo's a little too secure in his, I'm going to call it a degrading bear. <laughs> yeah, Gonzo's got a very uh, moldy, disgusting teddy bear. And so Fozzie keeps coming around the corner just in time to hear someone talk about how they don't want to see the bear anymore. Got to get that bear out of here. That bear is the worst thing that's ever happened to this theater. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very kind of basic... Um, not mistaken identity, obviously. What would you call it? Almost like a game of telephone or just a misunderstanding. I want to say comedy of errors, and I know that that's wrong. Yeah, it's close. It's just a, it's just a you know, it's just, it's just a series of misunderstandings that every scene pretty much backstage is someone talking about Gonzo getting rid of his teddy bear and Fozzie overhearing it and thinking they're talking about him. We get our opening credits. Uh, oh, something I forgot to point out the first time, of course, at the end of the opening credits in this first season, at least, Gonzo is standing at the top of the wedding cake. I can't, I don't know how else to explain the thing, right? They're sitting on a wedding cake at the end, at the, in the credits, There's right? a word for it, and I can't think of what it's it like is. It's like a tiered uh, risers. And at the end of it, Gonzo is supposed to hit the uh, O in show with a mallet. It's like a gong. And in the first episode, it exploded, and in this time, he just kind of rips through it. Yeah, it just sort of like shatters like a window. This will be a running thing throughout the first season. The first onstage bit of this episode is one of my favorites. It's on the same set. Actually, you can tell it's the exact. You can tell these were shot together because it's the exact same set as they did the Dancing Bear musical number. Kermit singing Lydia the Tattooed Lady. This song is from from the Marx Brothers film at the circus. This is also one of my favorite Muppet uh, musical numbers. It features Kermit singing about Lydia the Tattooed Lady. Lydia is a pig. And if you uh, look at her, she is tattooed. Jim drew all of those tattoos on her. That is amazing. She's also a student of history. I think that was like the <laughs> recurring theme throughout all of the tattoos is there was just a different historical event tattooed. Oh, yeah. It's got the, the wreck of the Hesperus and it's got uh, Washington crossing the Delaware and it's got Andrew Jackson. It's got. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, again, it, we're not going to you know go through and sing the song for you. But Kermit comes out kind of dressed almost like a carnival barker. And sings this song about Lydia, the tattooed lady, and uh, the yeah, and all her different tattoos. It's a great song. You should check it out. Followed immediately by Piggy getting really possessive and giving him a concussion. Yeah, see, we're setting it up right away. We think about these things as developing, but this is right away. Kermit comes off stage and he says, Oh, uh, uh, Piggy, uh, have you met Lydia? No. Have you met my left fist? Hmm? This Piggy is clearly performed by Oz, which is why you can tell it's a reshoot. Because it's performed by Oz with the traditional Piggy voice. And I wrote down, first time Piggy, Cold Cox Kermit. Will not be the last. No, not by a long shot. It is not yet a karate shop. This was just a straight punch. She has not, she has not got her brown belt yet. But yeah, so she, again, this is showing Piggy's jealousy for her frog. Um, and, and you have to think about it in context, though, of if you were watching the show when it aired. If this was not episode two, if this was episode 15 or 19, or 21, in the order in which you're watching them, then Kermit and Piggy having this relationship would make total sense. You would be in the middle of it. Here, it's kind of out of the blue, but it's still very funny. And then we get the return of the Swedish chef. 
playing uh, tennis with uh, the meatballs. Yeah, yeah. He's making some meatballs and they turn out to be kind of bouncy. So he plays tennis. He actually, he plays tennis with Statler uh, mm-hmm. up on the balcony. This Swedish chef bit works so much better than it did in Sex and Violence. Because it's cohesive? Yeah, because well, because they didn't cut it into pieces. You know, we, we talked about last time about how I thought the Sex and Violence pilot was hurt by overactive editing. When they got to this, they figured out, no, let's just let the scenes play out. This is much funnier having the chef. This isn't the best the chef will ever get, but it's a good solid start for the for the Swedish chef. And uh, so then we we meet, we find backstage, we we meet Wayne and Wanda, and we're kind of in a an unusual shot for this early on, where we're actually kind of up on the the top level of the backstage, <laughs> and Wayne and Wanda are in their dressing room, and and they're always trying to get onto the show, and and. So far, they don't have Sam the Eagle yet to push him on stage. So they're like, oh, the stage is empty. We have to go out there. And then, you know, of course, Wayne ends up embarrassing himself in front of Connie Stevens. And so we meet Connie Stevens, and she comes out in a, basically a poodle skirt. <laughs> I think Kermit even goes so far as to say that he's going to announce her in the same way that those old school DJs would have. And it's it's sort of set up as a nostalgic bit, because she, she sets it up by saying that it was something that she... her. Her teenage boyfriend used to sing to her. Oh, uh, yeah. There's some kind of joke about her loving the car or the boyfriend. One of the two. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Yes. Yeah, so she she's going to come out and sing kind of a nostalgic 50s bit. She's in a, in a thing. And she she flirts a little bit with Kermit. And yeah, Kermit tells her he's going to give her this uh, 1950s kind of uh, intro. And he totally does, by the way. This is Kermit the Frog, your favorite jock with all the top tunes of the day spinning merrily out your way. Stacks and stacks of wax and wax. And this is a golden oldie, a blast from the past, a fabulous Connie Stevens of the Mutations with a platter that mattered way back in 1956. Let's look on Teenager in Love. Connie, you're on. And then we get Connie Stevens' big scene, which is singing Teenager in Love, which is a, you know, from 1958 doo-wop song by Dion and the Belmonts, a very... Dion and the Belmonts are kind of a pretty big band from that era, from that kind of vocal, that doo-wop vocal era, kind of right before rock and roll started to break. Frankie Valli kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. She comes out with, um, now, you said she was a singer. Is she like doing a, let's be clear, Connie Stevens is not a teenager. Uh, no. We're, we're, we're a couple decades past when she was first kind of an ingenue, right? She, I think she released her first album in 58, and she released her first movie, which was a teen movie in 57. So right, this is right. two decades on. Right, 20 years later. I'm not going to bash her for that. It is just funny that she's singing Teenager in Love in this poodle skirt, and clearly looks like she's at least mid-30s to early 40s. I'm going to be mean for a second. I didn't think she sounded that great. Or is it just because she's putting on this kind of baby voice? That's a little bit of it. I think that she did clo- She did a better job with Close to You, and we'll get to that in a second. But yeah. With this particular bit, she was also, there was a little bit of uh, acting going on in terms of the mutations just trying to upstage her. Yeah, so she's out there dancing with, as she says, uh... Is that the group? Yep, you called it. Well, they aren't the temptations. Uh, No, those are the mutations. (laughs) Delightful. And those are her backing uh, group. It's not the the strongest thing. I didn't hate it or anything no. like that. It no. was just... Well, see, this is one of those musical numbers where it does work comedy into it. And I actually don't think the comedy is that funny. Like, it's it's actually almost too subtle, the mm-hmm. comedy in it, where the idea, I think, is that the her and the mutations are competing for camera time. Mm-hmm. 
I really don't think that uh, reads until maybe the end. I had to watch it twice just to double check. Yeah. Because you, you hear the laugh track a couple of times. Yeah. It's not terrible. No. It's not... I mean, this again, this song is uh, the song is what it is. It's a song that if you, um, you know, turn onto a 50s classic station on Sirius or something, you'll probably hear it every once in a while. When I hear that song, I think of things like, uh, I don't know, Back to the Future era type stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, 50, 50s kind of Americana poodle skirts. You know, back when America was great, right? For some. We go backstage where, you know, <laughs> was it Kermit talks about how moldy looking the teddy bear is. And of course, Fozzie hears that. So here's At The Dance for this week. A couple of funny things in, in this At The Dance, though. Menomina um, is in it dancing with Miss Mousy from The Valentine Show, which mm-hmm. I thought was cute. You don't get to see her a lot. Dr. Teeth is at the dance, too. And for the first time on The Muppet Show, we see Animal. He was supposed to be in the other one, but got cut out. And Animal is at the dance, and he is, um, des- let's just say he's not the best dance partner. He's a spirited one. <laughs> He's uh yeah one he he's he's uh he's uh whenever he dips his lady companion he um hits her head on the floor. There's also oh, I can't remember if it was in this one or another one, but one of the two at the dances that we watched had a fox in it. It was this one. Is this one where he says like it's not the fox trot? It's like for me it is. Yeah, for me right. It's the fox. That actually I think is a reworked Baskerville puppet. Hmm. He looks a lot like Baskerville the Hound. Talking about things that aren't funny but are still awesome. Uh, we get to the UK spot for this episode, the two minutes that only aired in Britain originally, which is Floyd and the Electric Mayhem singing Ain't Misbehavin', mm-hmm. which is a, mostly known as a Fats Waller song. What I love about the Mayhem is they're just a band. <laughs> they're a great band. And in this bit, it's mostly just, I think it's just Floyd, Zoot, and Janice. I don't even think Teeth is in it. It's just like the three of them. But what I loved watching it today... You know, I'd watched it a few times, and then I watched it again this afternoon with my kids. And what I really liked about this bit, it's just Floyd singing this song with the others on instruments. There's no gags. They're just standing next to each other like musicians would. They're relating to each other in the space like musicians would. You know, the way Janice is kind of playing her guitar and kind of nodding at Zoot while he's doing things. Like, there's a very, It actually feels very natural. It was just a naturalistic depiction of some musicians performing a song. Okay, so then we get back to um, another episode of Talk Spot with Kermit and Connie and doesn't I think Fozzie budges, bursts in, right? This is one that you were talking about with Close to You? Uh, yeah, that, so Fozzie definitely bursts in on that point. I wasn't, I couldn't recall if that was where, if that started with a Talk Spot, but yeah. It's a Talk Spot segment where Kermit and Connie are talking mm-hmm. and she starts singing Close to You, the uh, I think it's a Burt Baccarat song. And then Fozzie. The only thing I really remembered from it is that Fozzie's voice is not the Fozzie's voice that we know. It's this early kind of uh, proto-Fozzie voice. Uh, so it's obviously an original from the pilot take. I don't know, man. The talk spot ones never do it for me, ever. <laughs> Every once in a while there's a funny joke, but it's not really, I don't know. They never do it for me. I also am aware that they weren't able, like, especially first season and at the beginning of first season, they weren't able to get a lot of the talent that they might have wanted. It's possible, and I'd I'd have to revisit, or we'll get there in due time, but I I would wonder what a talk spot with, say, Steve Martin might look like, as opposed to one with Connie Stevens. We don't really have much of a frame of reference 
for these two women. And, and yes, they were a couple of people that Bernie Brillstein knew, but they were legitimate stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's I mean, they weren't A-listers. They weren't, you know, it, it wasn't like they were getting Burt Reynolds or Frank Sinatra, you know. But they were still known people, especially Connie Stevens. You know, she would have been considered, you know, past her prime, I think, as, a, as an actor, as a performer. But she still would have been somebody that was known, you know. And she was, she stayed working. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it, it, she, she definitely, you said, she was working as recently as last year. But the quality of the guest stars does improve, you know. As soon as the show becomes a hit, it becomes a hit. Like, when these episodes air, it becomes a hit instantly. Lou Grade manages to sell it to pretty much every major market in the United States, and it, it's on multiple channels in the UK, and it's just a hit right out, out, out the gate. And as soon as that happens, every agent in Hollywood is asking, you know, can I get my person on the Muppets? You know, can I get my client on the Muppets? Okay, so then we, we, fin- then we continue with the backstage story after that. And then we get to... A shout out to the previous pilot in a, uh, in a bit called Saxon Violence. Nigel, uh, again, former host, but now lowly conductor in the orchestra, is uh, trying to get Zoot to play a new piece of music. This might have been my favorite bit for this episode. Um, so basically, Zoot feels like he's being condescended to. I, I mean, you won't know it until the bit starts, but he's he's basically supposed to play one note every so often on a sax. Yeah, and this new piece of music that Nigel has composed for the band. And then Manamana comes in on the triangle, and he's able to do way more dynamic things using the triangle than Zoot is with the saxophone. And you just see that look of defeat on Zoot's face the entire time. And then Manamana punches him in the nose. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as he's Nigel, and uh, Nigel, thro- you know, I mean, Zoot, is this old Zoot's probably what you know, other than Statler and Waldorf and maybe like George, Zoot's one of the older characters. Mm-hmm. So because he's supposed to be like, you know, Woodstock burnout. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but he's very much about the art. He apologizes to Charlie Parker for what he's about to do. <laughs> to the spirit of Charlie Parker for her for him to desecrate his saxophone by playing this garbage music. Actually, this the funny, this little bit of music was actually written by uh Jim Henson. Was it? Yeah. I assumed it was something they'd gotten from some... Like, it seemed like the kind of gag bit that you would have seen in a lot of their other stuff that had just been, like, pulled from a pre-existing piece. But I didn't realize this was an original composition. That makes it better. Yeah, this was actually an original piece, yeah, called Sax and Violence. So then, uh... uh, Oh, okay. So Gonzo's skit, this Gonzo's uh, stunt this week is he's going to. What's he doing? He's like wrestling a tomato plant. He's trying to grow it while playing violin and. While playing the 1812 Overture on a violin. It goes Attack of the Killer Tomatoes on him a little bit. See, I, I see you're not. I like you to pull out Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's good. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. They'll beat you, bash you, squish you, mash you, chew you up for brunch, and finish you off for dinner or lunch. There was a '90s cartoon show. <laughs> oh, was it? Oh, no, see, I know. I, I only, I only know it from the the movies. Yeah, when I when I was a kid. When I was a kid in the 80s, that w- they were like, the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes movies were like, I don't know, you just rent, I don't know why we rented them, but we rented them all the time. 
I've got the first, I own the first one on DVD. I remember the second one being weirdly different and more out there. George Clooney's in one of them. Was he? I have to see if I, that's the one I've George got. Clooney, I think George Clooney's in like Revenge of the Killer Tomatoes or Return of the Killer Tomatoes. It's like mm-hmm. one of the later ones, but yeah, it's one of George Clooney's first acting roles. It's, it's kind of like uh, Jennifer Aniston in uh, the first Leprechaun movie. Which I saw way too young. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's Leprechaun. Uh, have you seen Leprechaun in the Hood? Yes. And it's sequel. That's good stuff. I haven't seen the second one. I've only seen the first one. It's, uh... Ice-T kills it in that movie. Why did I think it was Snoop in the first one? No, Ice-T is, not it? Yeah, it's Ice-T is in Leprechaun in the Hood. Yeah. He plays, uh... I forget his character name, but it's Ice-T. Snoop wasn't... That was too... That's too young for Snoop. Snoop would have been, like, 15. No, no. Leprechaun in the Hood was one of the later... This is a complete tangent. Leprechaun in the Hood was definitely one of the later Leprechaun installments, though. I feel like it was, like, after 2000, but I could be wrong. I know Ice-T is in the, um... In the first mm-hmm. one, because I've seen that one. Hey, Chad here. So Leprechaun 5 in the hood came out in 2000, which, yeah, Snoop would have been old enough, but it did star Ice-T. So I don't know what movie Nick was thinking of. He was probably thinking of like Half-Baked or something. I, I thought it was cool that Gonzo starts his bit, and we only see maybe 10 seconds of it. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to Kermit in the wings, and he's like, this isn't going well. And then he's like, well, that was over. And then, and then in the same shot, he's like, well, that's over. <laughs> Like, like they, they play his, Gonzo's entire failure is played off screen. That could be a budget thing too, hmm. or a time thing, but this is going to happen a lot. Gonzo's going to go out and do his thing, and then he's going to come running off the stage with booze behind him. He's worse off than Fozzie. I'd say he has a less successful career than Fozzie does. And then Fozzie has uh, packed up his stuff, and he's ready to go, because no one wants the bear. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. No one wants the bear. And he has misheard it this whole time, and he tells Kermit, I'm leaving. I'm going home. And then Gonzo comes in and says, Kermit, if the bear goes, I go. And Fozzie is so filled with pride that his friend is standing up for him. And then Kermit figures it out. And uh, and in one of my, probably my favorite joke in this episode, is Kermit. It's like, Fozzie. When you heard people saying they didn't want the bear around here, they were referring to Gonzo's teddy bear. Not to you. Teddy bear? Oh, you mean, then you really want me to stay on the show? Of course I want you to stay on the show. You're a star. You're a legend in your own time. Oh. Am I laying it on a little too thick? Oh, I don't know what to say, except that if, if you, the frog, want me, the bear, to stay, then I just have to have a raise. What? Oh, yeah. oh I need a bigger dressing room and a limousine. Will you get out of here, Fozzie? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, Kermit lets the teddy bear stay, too. Although, I don't think we ever see the teddy bear again. <laughs> so, um. Okay, okay, you can stay. The teddy bear can stay. Both bears can yeah! stay. The gonzo can stay. It's kind of a good classic Kermit freakout. Then we get, uh, for the first time, a Muppet News Flash. These are the segments with the Muppet Newsman where he comes in, he delivers a line of uh, news, and then there's a usually a sight gag of a punchline. This one is very not funny. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, it's a, he comes in and he says he's getting a call on, for, from Washington, D.C. on the hotline. And he picks up the phone and he puts it down because it's hot. And that's the, that's the joke. If you blink, you'll miss it. Yeah, and it's, you're right, it's very short. Now Kermit comes out and he introduces Bert and Ernie. I don't know. <laughs> it feels, like you said, it feels a little weird. And it wasn't a bad bit. I think the entire thing does sort of re- rely on 
the show watchers being familiar with Sesame Street, because there's a pre-existing dynamic that's sort of called through. But it's basically just Ernie playing on Bert's insecurities and then Ernie having a, a dancing number with Connie Stevens. This is actually something that they did. I'm trying to remember where I saw it. It might have been on the Dick Cavett show where they did something very similar to this, where they had Bert and Ernie and Bert was, but this was live. I think it was Cavett. And where where Bert is saying, like, we're on this big time variety show now. You know, we're not on the little kitty show anymore. And they convince, and Ernie's like, come on, Bert. And he convinces him to do like a big number. I think, I actually think they've done this before. I'll have to go back and find it. They they made references to stuff that they'd already done. Yeah, and he, he goads, Ernie basically goads Bert into doing a musical number. And uh, dresses him up in a tuxedo. And Bert comes out and does a very nice, lovely rendering of Some Enchanted Evening from the musical South Pacific. The Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, South Pacific. Frank makes a meal out of this. <laughs> I think I like seeing I like when Bert is free. I, I like when Bert's like, you know, I'm a very self-conscious person at times. So I like when Bert is able to kind of step outside of himself and uh, and let it go. And he, he sings. And, and yeah, and it's weird, though. And then so Connie comes in, but Connie doesn't sing in this at all. Connie comes down the stairs to him kind of dancing. It did seem because she was constantly moving back and forth. It's a weird use of her, is all I'm saying. It's a weird use of her, especially since this is her last... She's not in any other sketches. The show's almost over. Mm -hmm. And her last bit, she's silent in it. Bert seemed taller. Did you notice that when they were dancing? It's like they yes. built, made a bigger Bert. I, and I thought that was something that was by design, because she kept moving around him in the fore and background, and she ended up spinning him, but still... I mean, it's, it's a good performance by Frank. These first two episodes, I just don't think they have any idea what to do with the guest star. I'm thinking in, into the future for, like... Mark Hamill, where the entire episode is Star Wars based, or where Vincent Price, how they use, how, how when Vincent Price hosts the show, it becomes about creepy ghouls and Vincent Price. And um, the Harry Belafonte episode, when he takes it, when Harry Belafonte, and I'm going to say this ahead of time. I'm going to say this now in, our, in the first episode about The Muppet Show and see if it stands through all of this. I'm going to go ahead and say that the Harry Belafonte episode is the best episode ever of The Muppet Show. So I'm going to go ahead and lay that down now and see if I still feel that way in five seasons. But I think it's the best episode of The Muppet Show. Harry Belafonte's personality, his art, his spirit is throughout the entire episode. This is the, they weren't doing that yet <laughs> with these. They were definitely not writing for the guest stars. I didn't agree at the end though, because Bert looks at Ernie and says, Bert, Ernie, did I just make a fool of myself? And Bert said, and Ernie's like, yeah, Bert, let's go home. Or whatever. I was like, no, we didn't. Ernie also winks at the camera, though. Like, Ernie knew that Bert had done a good job. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess he does. He, he was just kind of being a dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, like, you know, I mean, Bert, Bert did a great job, you know? Support your friend. And that's kind of, and that's the big sequence, and that's the big finale. Again, like you said, kind of weird that it ends there, you know? These first couple episodes don't really end so much as they stop. Yeah, yeah. The weird thing about it is, I don't, I don't know why, but I was expecting them to be, like, closer to an hour long, which obviously they wouldn't be, but that made the ending seem that much more abrupt. If I was doing it, if I was, if I was Jim Henson, no, the, in the first one, like we said, it would, it probably would have been more interesting to end with the dancing bear number, mm -hmm. because that was the culmination of the backstage story that would then cross over with the onstage. This doesn't culminate on stage, like in the other one. So, like, if Fozzie was involved in the final sequence, 
Fozzie was dancing and singing with her after this whole time being told he wasn't wanted and then or believing he wasn't wanted and then he gets to do this big number. That would give it a more satisfying arc and it would, again, I'm probably thinking way too much of this, but it would then elide the two, the backstage and the onstage together. You're not watching these for the narratives, but it's still something to think about, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we get the closing curtain with Kermit and uh, the age-old tradition of of two episodes of giving Connie Stevens a Connie Stevens Muppet. Oh, and then Gonzo's tomato plant attacks her or something. Mm Yeah, those are the first two episodes of The Muppet Show. They still really hold up. They're still really funny. You know, we're, we're, we're poking some holes in them, but, you know, that's just because, you know, what are we going to do? We're talking about them, you know. And, and we still really enjoyed the watching experience of them. Oh, no, they're great. They're absolutely great. That's why we're watching these in production order. Shows get better, and we're going to watch this show get better. This is a learning season. And I think we'll see once we get to season two, it's going to look so much more like The Muppet Show that everyone thinks of. Next time, a little bit of the old razzle-dazzle. We will be watching episode 103 uh, with host Joel Gray and episode 104 with Laugh-In star Ruth Buzzy. Watch those and then come back at Lunatic Daring on social media, lunaticdaring.com. My name is Chad. My name is Nick. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio. Man, you think this show is educational? Yes, it'll drive people to read books. 